as being somehow worse than us, right? We can't look down on them and say, well, I'm glad I'm not like they are. Because we are in the same position naturally as they are. The apostle writes, therefore, you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself, because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of His kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you're storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. He will render to each one according to his works. To those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek. But glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek, for God shows no partiality. For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law, and all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law will be justified. For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts." while their conscience also bears witness and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them on that day when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. Amen. Now, Lord's Day 4 asks us three questions. And remember, these are the the questions that we need to understand, that we need to, to process if we're to have the comfort of knowing that we belong to Christ. And the first question is this. Doesn't God do man an injustice by requiring in his law what man is unable to do? And the answer is no. God created man with the ability to to keep his law. Man, however, tempted by the devil in reckless disobedience, robbed himself and his descendants of these gifts. Will God permit such disobedience and rebellion to go unpunished? Certainly not. He's terribly angry about the sin we are born with as well as the sins we personally commit. As a just judge, he punishes them now and in eternity. He has declared, cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. But isn't God also merciful? God is certainly merciful. However, he also is just. His justice demands that sin committed against His supreme majesty be punished with the supreme penalty, eternal punishment of body and of soul. Amen. Beloved disciples of our Lord Jesus Christ, this is not a message that we love to hear, is it? We'd just as soon not think about the cost of Adam's sin, much less the cost of our own sin. We'd rather just, you know, maybe make mention of that in catechism class. Just kind of leave it there. Can't we focus on on the good stuff, on the joyful stuff, on the light? But you see, we can't really recognize the goodness of the light 
except against the background of the darkness. This evening, we have had the privilege of witnessing the baptism of a child of the covenant. Because his parents are believers, God has promised Landon, I will be your God and you will be my son. And the Lord promises all that goes along with that. Constant exposure to the gospel, the softening and teaching work of the Holy Spirit, the justification earned by Jesus Christ, the sanctification that day by day transforms the life of his people. Amazing promises. And through baptism, they are promises that we can see, being just as real as the water that wet Landon's face. But if Landon is to receive not just the promises, but the reality that they promise, then he can't just presume upon God's mercy. He has to take hold of those promises by faith. And that means that we have the calling of teaching Landon what those promises really are, what they mean, and why they're so essential to us. And our teaching has to include more than just the the fun stuff. Jesus loves me, this I know. That's something I expect Landon will learn as maybe his third and fourth words. We sang this evening, Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound. That is a blessing to sing, a blessing to contemplate. And I'm confident that he will learn that. But we need to teach our children not just about the grace that God has given, but also about the reason that grace is needed. And that's what Lord's Day 4 reminds us. It reminds us that God reveals His justice, His grace certainly, but also His justice in all His relations with men. That's our theme this evening. God reveals His justice in all His relations with men. And as we first consider that, it doesn't seem like very good news at all. I promise you it will by the end. But at the start, it's not. Because it starts out by showing us God's righteous requirement, His righteous requirement of obedience, which is how man began. See, the first thing we need to teach our children about God is that He is just. Kids from the word go are all about fairness. Every parent in here knows this. If you give this child different chores than that child, well, that's not fair. Or if you punish this child for something and you let let it slide with that one, that's just not okay, right? Even if you, even if you, you know, maybe change your parenting style from child one to child four, boy, child one will really notice that. They can sniff out unfairness a mile away. And we have to show them that God is fair. We might not always meet the standard, but God always does. From the very beginning, God has required man's submission. Adam and Eve were called to honor God as their legitimate king. Among other things, that meant that they were to believe every word that he spoke and obey every command that he gave. In fact, they were even to acknowledge him as the rightful source of every standard. If God said it was good, then it was good, because God said it was good. If God said it was bad or wrong or false, then because God said it was bad or wrong or false, that made it bad or wrong or false. He's the source of all truth, and we're called to acknowledge that. And God has the right, had the right then, has the right now, to demand that submission. See, for kids, jurisdiction is a big deal. It's not enough for most kids to hear a command and understand it. 
they also need to know that it was legitimate to be given to them. That's jurisdiction. Knowing that the person who commanded you has the right to command you. Parents, you've probably, if, if your child is old enough to walk, you've seen them challenge jurisdiction, right? An older sibling or a cousin tells them to do something and immediately their back gets straight and they say, you're not the boss of me, right? Or they get just a little bit out of line at the grocery store, maybe more than a little bit, and some stranger kind of admonishes them, you pay attention to your mom, and they look at him like, how dare you, right? You're not my parent. You're not dad. They recognize that person doesn't have jurisdiction. Well, God does have jurisdiction. He has jurisdiction over every single person who exists because He made us. We are, we exist because He commanded us to exist. And we are the way that we are. We have the abilities, the strengths, the the challenges that we have because God ordained it for each one of us. And not only did He make us, but He sustains us. Every moment of every day, God sustains us. Psalm 104 says if God turns away His face, if He takes their breath, they return to the dust. Right? And that's true for men, it's true for animals, it's true for sea creatures and birds, for every living thing. We continue to live and to dwell on the earth only insofar as God sustains us. So we owe everything to Him. He possesses the ultimate jurisdiction. He is the one upon whom we all depend for every instant. And more than that, as I said, God is the one who defines morality. Whatever is good is good because God has said it is good. Whatever is bad, its rottenness arises from the fact that it's in conflict with God's standard of goodness. Good and bad, right and wrong, those concepts have no meaning apart from our God. So from the very start, God has had the right to say what we must do or not do, to expect our submission to His commands, and to punish us if we refuse. But we can't obey Him. Inevitably, we fail. That's what led to the objection expressed at the start of Lord's Day 4. But doesn't God do man an injustice by requiring in His law what man is unable to do? Now, if our inability was original, that is, if man had never been able to obey God, that would be valid. It would be unjust for God to demand our submission to Him in a way that we couldn't submit. That'd be like punishing your newborn infant for refusing to do your taxes. It's impossible, right? But that's not the case. Because at the start, as we saw last week, at the start, God created man perfectly capable Man was able to know God and to understand his expectations. Man was able to accomplish everything God commanded. Man was able to submit to God without any flaw or failure. Now how Adam used that that ability, how we behave, those are immaterial. The fact is that God created us and designed us able. And therefore God is just to expect us to do what he designed us to be able to do. That's a fact that we all need to understand from our earliest days. God commands us to know Him. And then He surrounds us with a creation that testifies to Him. As we saw in our reading from Romans 2, His moral law is even written on our hearts. We have no, we have no excuse. 
We know who God is. More than that, we know what God commands. Romans 1 tells us that men go to great lengths to deny it, to reject it, to come up with substitutes for it. But in their heart of hearts, every single man, woman, and child knows who God is and what He wants us to do. And we refuse. But the fact that we refuse doesn't change the fact that we know and that we were created with the ability to do. But of course there's a problem. The problem is that regardless of the justice of God's commands, we can't do it. Time and again we disobey God. Even when we firmly resolve to submit to Him, we fail. And that leads to our second point that our children need to know, that man's, and that's man's rebellious rejection of submission. Again, going back to Adam. The act of what Adam did is pretty straightforward. God gave a command, do not eat the fruit of that one tree. And Adam did. Now, of course, there's some nuance to the situation. The serpent spoke quite persuasively. Eve went before Adam, breaking the command before he did. And, of course, the fruit looked good. It it was tempting in, in the way it appeared to him. But at the end of the day, the facts can't really be questioned. Adam understood the command God spoke to him. He had no reason to doubt the goodness of God. He had the ability to obey, to submit to God, and he chose not to. And Adam was not standing alone. He had Eve there whom he was to protect. He was called to act on our behalf as our representative. All of humanity depended on Adam obeying God. And so in that light, we can see that Adam's sin wasn't a small transgression. It wasn't just a fall. No, it was a wicked act of rebellion. It was an act of ingratitude and malice. Now, Adam suffered for that sin. But so do we. A few chapters later, Romans 5 says that Adam's one trespass led to condemnation for all of us. Because he was acting on our behalf, when he sinned, we became inherently guilty. He earned wrath on our behalf. And beyond that, because of Adam's sin, we became sinners. That is, we became corrupt so that we could no longer choose to obey God. Right? Our every deed would be sinful. And so as we heard in our reading from Romans 2 verse 5, our hearts from the start are hard, unwilling to bow before God, powerless to submit to Him. We start our lives impenitent. That means that we don't even, we don't even feel bad about rebelling against God. We're committed to our sinful ways. Paul tells us, we know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. And he's talking to us. God's judgment rightly falls upon our heads because we naturally embrace not what God designed us to embrace, not submission and love. and No, we naturally embrace rebellion and hatred and sin. Because of Adam's sin, there is not one of us who by our power is able to obey God. 
Therefore you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another you condemn yourself, because you, the judge, practice the very same thing. That's true of all of us who are parents. That's true of all of your children. That's true of every single person who sits in this room. None of us has an excuse, not one. Every one of us has sinned. Every one of us has embraced rebellion against God. Every one of us has followed the footsteps of Adam, our first father. That's true of those who were raised with no knowledge of God. The world testified to God, but they spent themselves in denying what their own eyes could see and in serving the creation rather than the the creator who is to be blessed. That's also true of those of us who grew up knowing God and His Word. We've memorized God's law from early ages. We were taught by our parents, you, you need to honor your father and mother because God said so. You need to not hate your brother because God said so. You need to not covet because God said so. And yet, what Romans 3 verse 12 says, it says also of us. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even Not a very pleasant thing to talk to your child in the crib about, is it? But they need to hear it. Because they need to know from the start there's no hope found in us. Right? They will fail. They will sin. And so will we as their parents. And so will their older siblings. And so will their grandparents. And so will the elders of the church and the deacons and the minister. And so will... Every one of us fails. Every one of us falls short. Every one of us engages in acts of rebellion against God. And as long as we rest in us, there is no hope. That, my friends, is absolutely tragic news. It's the last thing that we desire to believe, much less to teach our children. However, it's only in recognizing the darkness that lives in us that we can see the light that God brings to us. And that light is found in God's relentless punishment of sin, believe it or not. It's our last point, and that's where we encounter the light. It doesn't start out as light. For the person who rests in himself or in other men, the future is bleak. Paul asks in Romans 2 verse 3, Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things, yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? The answer is obvious. Of course not. Verse 6, God will render to each one according to his works. And if our works reveal a life that's been devoted to sin, if our works reveal that we have consistently followed after Adam's steps, well, there will be, verse 8, wrath and fury. Romans 2, verse 5 says, The day in which God's righteous judgment will be revealed shall be for us. Nor will God hear our excuses. Some will complain, well, I never heard your word. And God will say, as we saw there, it was written on your heart, so you knew it. Others will say, well, I heard your word, but it just led me into more sin. And he will tell us it wasn't designed that way. That was you. And that was Adam. And that was rebellion. As long as we rest in ourselves, there is no hope. Romans 6, verse 23 says, the wages of sin is death. 
But it doesn't stop there. The wages of sin is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. You see, that's why Jesus came. He came because man is unable to do it. He came because God was just in expecting us to do what He designed us to do and we had acted in such a way that we could no longer do it. The wages of sin is death and so God had to send the free gift that would allow Him to be just and to punish sin. We don't want Him to be to, to forsake justice. We don't want God to change. Then He's not truly God, right? We want Him to punish sin. We want Him to be of His Word, true to His Word. But we also want to be freed. We need to be freed, desperately need to be freed from the consequence of our rebellion. And so God sent Jesus to do that. Romans 5 takes great pains toward the end of the chapter to compare Adam, our first father, our first representative, with Jesus, our saving representative. Verses 16 and 18 point to guilt. When Adam sinned, he left us guilty. He condemned us. He acted on our behalf in such a way that we were all rendered unrighteous in God's sight from the start. But when Jesus came, his life, his suffering, his death, his resurrection brought us justification, brought us life, released us from that condemnation. Romans 5 verse 19 speaks of character. Adam's disobedience rendered us sinners. But what Jesus did restores us unto righteousness, leads us back out of that slavery to sin and into a life of following the Lord. In other words, Jesus perfectly came to perfectly counteract all that Adam did. Where Adam left us condemned to suffer God's wrath, Jesus rescues us and gives us God's love. Where Adam polluted our hearts so that we were enslaved to sin, Jesus breaks the slavery and frees us to serve God in holiness. Again, Romans 6 verse 23, The wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. This, my friends, is the light of the gospel and it is a light that against the backdrop of our sin and rebellion is blindingly glorious. In fact, the light of the gospel, its goodness, its glory, is something that ought to fill God's people. If we know the blackness that fills us in our sin, if we understand how hopeless it is to rest in us, when we come to recognize how great is the gift God has given us in Christ, we will be overwhelmed. At the end of Romans 6, The apostle says, when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. In other words, you didn't do it, right? And what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed? The end of those things is death. As long as we were living in Adam, as long as we were going in the way that comes natural to us, there was nothing for us but deepening our debt, deepening our condemnation, consuming us with darkness. But... But now that you've been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and to its end, eternal life. In other words, once we came to Christ, 
Once we received that free gift, suddenly that free gift overwhelmed us. And we, instead of devoting ourselves to darkness and sin, we began devoting ourselves to to holiness and to light and to righteousness and to serving God. That's why back in our scripture reading from Romans 2, we find good news. God will render to each one according to his works. That's going to happen for each one of us. We're all going to stand before God. He's going to evaluate our lives. Verse 8 says, For those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness. That's where we would naturally go, right? Self-centered. Self-seeking. Desiring only the pleasures of the moment. Refusing to obey the truth, but obeying the lie. For them there will be wrath and fury. But, he says... To those who by patience in well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality. Does anybody do that? Not of themselves. But if you're in Christ, if you have taken those baptismal promises that we heard given to Landon, that were set upon him by the sign and seal of that water, if you take hold of those as your own, you believe that God really meant it, that Jesus really accomplished it, that that's exactly what you need. If you take hold of that, then that light of Christ will consume you and you will begin living a life of gratitude. You will begin living a life that is marked by patience in well-doing and seeking for glory and honor and immortality. And God, looking upon your life, will note how your life, while it wasn't perfect, while your works were still sained with sin, they were decidedly different from those who continued in their rebellion. They revealed the work of the Spirit. They revealed your hope in Christ. And so for you, for you will come not wrath and fury, but eternal life and glory and grace. If Landon is to take hold of the promises of his baptism. Not just as a tradition. Not just doing what he's expected to do, but passionately taking hold. But passionately taking hold of what Christ has done. Openly confessing it before the world. Then he has to understand how desperately he needs it. He needs to see how bright that light is shining. And that means that he needs to know the darkness too. And all of our children do. When they sin, and they will sin, when they sin, we need to remind them where that sin comes from and how hopeless it is to try to escape it on our own power. But then in prayer, we need to lead them to the one who can give them escape. And we need to talk to them about how Jesus took all the consequence that we deserve, how he endured all the wrath of God that we had earned, so that we could receive all the grace, all the glory, all the life that Jesus earned. That's our hope. That's the glory. That's the grace in which we live. May God make it our passion individually to take hold of that, but also as a church to teach our children to love, to delight in the glory of the gospel that God has given us in Christ, that delivers us out of the darkness and into His incomparable light. Amen? Let's pray.
Father, we thank you for the amazing blessing, the amazing gift that you've given us in Christ. We know that were we left to ourselves, we would always and only follow after the ways of Adam in sin and rebellion. And you would be righteous and just to punish us eternally for it. But you gave us the promise of sonship, the promise of adoption. Fulfilling that promise through the justification and life that you send in Christ. Father, we pray that you would cause each one of us to take hold of that promise by a living faith, a faith that you give to us through your Spirit and that we exercise day by day and cause us to passionately explain that truth to our children, calling them repeatedly, continually to take hold of that for which you have taken hold of us recognizing that their only hope and their only help now and unto eternity is found in what Jesus has done for us. And Father, teach us to live our lives in response to that glorious work. This we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Beloved, in response, let us give praise to to Christ who came as the man of sorrows to endure what we deserve so that, we could, so that we could possess the glory of His gospel. Number 381. We'll sing all the stanzas. this evening is for the work of Dave Mings. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you have given us opportunity to take part in this publishing and evangelistic ministry. We ask that you would bless the offerings that we bring, that they might be used unto your glory and honor. And we pray that you would receive them as a token of the gratitude that we have toward you. In Jesus' name we pray it. Amen. 
Our offering song this evening is number 32. Jehovah, hear thee in thy grief. We'll sing all six stanzas. Number 32.
The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make His face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up His countenance upon you and give you peace.